On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, CBS may take an interesting approach to replacing James Corden on The Late Late Show. Ted Lasso might be ending after this coming season three. Sue has a series of really bad customer service experiences and the star of Bridgerton, Simone Ashley, joins us. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue Baloo, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on, Steve Mason. You are hatless today for, I think, one of the few times that I've seen you hatless on our podcast. You know what? When I see a guest on the cover of Glamour Magazine or <laughs> Vogue Magazine, I feel it feels very inappropriate to wear a hat and and we'll let you know that coming up for you on the show uh we are joined by simone ashley who's one of the stars of bridgerton i got kind of a crash course in bridgerton you watched a bunch right i watched the entire second season in two days wow wow you went all in i went all in there were only eight episodes and i tell you it was really hard to stop watching it's good it's really it's, good it's, it's really, really good. good yeah so I thought we'd drop in a couple of uh, showbiz highlights kind of things uh, right at the top of the show. First of all, you know, James Corden is leaving the Late Late Show on CBS. You've heard that, right? Yes, I have. So, you know, we live in this age where you've got Colbert and you've got Fallon and you've got Kimmel and you've got Seth Meyers. CBS is considering doing some, something completely different. They're considering a panel show to replace James Corden. What do you think of the idea of a panel show at 1230 on CBS? I think it's a great idea. It's something different. And look, it depends on who the panel is. Sure, sure. Well, the, the rumor or the reports are, like in Variety, that they would be going for kind of a politically incorrect sort of uh, Chelsea Handler panel, like that kind of thing. I think it's really, really smart. I think you put a bunch of people on one side of a table, you've got a show. You know, whether it's The View or it's, I guess there's a show called The Talk now. Uh, there's uh, uh, stuff like uh, Jada Pinkett-Smith has got her Red Table show. Like mm -hmm. uh, the number one show on cable news is called The Five. It's on Fox News Channel. Just right. five people sitting on one side of a table mm -hmm. uh, talking to the camera. I, I think it's a really good idea. Yeah, I love the idea of people just having conversation about what's going on. And you know what? We could panel. We could panel. We could panel. If it's a rotating group of panelists, we could panel. Well, all right. Um, let's get on it. Let's get on it. All right. One other thing I wanted to mention here is that Ted Lasso, which is one of our favorite shows around here, may end after season three. 
So according to Brett Goldstein, who plays Roy Kent, who can just swear up an unbelievable storm and does on the show, uh, he did an appearance uh, or did an interview with the UK Sunday Times. And he says uh, that the plan was always for Ted Lasso to go just three seasons. And he says, we are writing it like that. He's one of the writers. Now, what do you think of the, the idea that they're going to end this really great show that everybody's into after just three years? I don't have a problem with a series ending in what fans perceive prematurely if they feel that everything that they wanted to tell is, is being told. Like if, it, if they feel like there's like, what else can we do? You know what I mean? Like we've wrapped it up. Right. And let's go out with fans. Wanting more. Wanting more. Um, but, you know, but, but feeling satisfied that we, we did what we, we, what we set out to do. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I just watched Hacks season two. I just finished season two. And it ends like it's the series finale. Like you could, you could end the show right there and it'd be totally everything's resolved, no loose ends. But I understand they're coming back. Now, Ted Lasso is, I I think it's just a really good force in the world. I hope it hangs around Mm -hmm. for for more than just this next season. But you're right. I think it's better than, than just sort of letting it drag on with no more real story to tell. They did a good job setting up season three of Ted Lasso with Nate going to coach the the other team and so now you've got nate versus ted all year right. long uh nate has become the villain of the show uh but if they end it i you know it's it's better to leave them wanting more i guess right i mean like as as a big fan of the show selfishly you know you want i, I want it to go on longer but i totally get it you know it's like well you look at curb curb your enthusiasm i mean he was on for many seasons and then they took a huge break i mean oh, what, yeah. was it like a 10 year break or something like that yeah it was it was at least five, yeah it's 5 to 10 years something like that so you know they came back but i think that's the kind of show that lives on because I don't think you're ever going to get a resolve with Larry. You know, he's always going to be that guy. I think all the characters, they're always going to be those people. And I I think that, you know, it it could go on forever. Yeah. I mean, it's not Curb Your Enthusiasm is not plot driven the way a show like Ted Lasso is. Like every episode stands by. You can watch any episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm and you get beginning, middle, end. You're never left hanging, right? Right. Um, and by the way, no very special episodes. Like there's never been a sad episode of right, right of that show. Even when uh, who was it? Super Dave, Dave Oz. Is it Dave Osborne? Yeah. Uh-huh. No. What's his What's his real name? Oh, he's um he's um oh god, what's his real name? What's oh. his real name? Oh, I can't I can't believe I'm yeah I can't I can't believe Albert Brooks's brother Albert Brooks's brother Einstein. Dave, oh yeah, Bob Einstein. Bob Einstein. Even when he passed away, they didn't do a very special episode. They just brought in Vince Vaughn as like his his brother, mm-hmm. uh, which is right for Curb Your Enthusiasm. But yeah, it would be sad to see Ted Lasso go, but I guess leave him wanting more is a good showbiz rule. All right. What do you got? So I'm on the phone the other day. I, I actually had a situation with um, my Alaska Airlines credit card. Okay. And um, 
I tried to get a passport, like renew my passport. I just realized that it had expired. Oh, no. Yeah. In December. So I, 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 I had filled out a form online like four months ago, mm-hmm. paid $49 and never received a follow-up email from wherever I, you know, I, and I, I, I didn't even pay attention to like what the site was. I just, it just said passport renewal, right? Okay. So all this time has gone by and I couldn't figure out where the charge came from. I thought maybe I paid it with my ATM card and I'm mm-hmm. looking at other credit cards. And the one credit card I didn't check was my Alaska card. So I finally see that that's what it was. And the name of the charge said travel. It just said travel passport. That was okay. like the name of the company or whatever. So I call up. And the representative tells me, oh, it looks like it came from uh, Barcelona. Barcelona? So, yeah. And I said, Barcelona? I said, why Why Barcelona? I said, I'm, I'm American. I'm, I wasn't trying to get a Spanish passport. <laughs> yeah. So um, she says, well, that's what it says. And if you want to dispute it, then you can uh, go to this link and uh, and fill out a form. Okay. And I was like, you mean you can't tell me? You can't, you, you can't do it. Like you work for, you know, the credit card company. company, This is kind of your job to, 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 um, to do this. So, um, so I had, I had another situation also where my, my mileage number wasn't, uh, wasn't working. Every time I try to figure out what my mileage was, it kept on saying that I had no mileage. And it's like, well, that's impossible because I use the card. And the same thing, this, this same woman like was so not helpful. So I get off the phone with her and I was like, this does not sound right that I have to do this myself. So I call up again. I get a different representative, complete 180. Oh, She's really? Like, gave you all the information? Gave me all the information, told me I can take care of this. We'll put in a dispute. And I said, you mean I don't have to go on and do this myself? She said, no. And I said, oh, well, you know, I spoke to somebody else from, you know, and they uh, gave me completely different information. And she said, um, what was her name? And then, oh, uh, no. Did you snitch? Well, I said, I don't want to get this person in trouble. So they only give first names. You can't snitches give get stitches. You, you can't you can't give like a last name because they don't give you a last name. Right. right? And it's probably not even the real first name. Right. So I said, I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. So this is my question to you. Okay. When it Sounds, comes by the to- way, like you are a travel mess. Passport, mileage number, (laughs) mileage number. Right. Well, it's a real pet peeve of mine when you try to get help from somebody who works somewhere. Uh You know, it's kind of like like if I go to Target and I'll say to someone who works there and they have a like a handheld computer in their hand. Right. And I'll say, do you have any more of these or do you have it in another color or something like that? And they say, just what's I don't know. Like they basically just say, I don't know. Right. And I said, well, you have a computer in your hand. I said, isn't that part of the job for you to look it up for me? Yes. Right? Yeah, I guess I can do that. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the lazy salesperson, you know? Yeah, right, right. Or, or if I say, you know, can you tell me where I find like detergent or something? And they say, oh, well, you go down here and then you make a left and then you go around the corner and then it's like you take an Uber. It's like they give me these extensive directions. Yes. And it's like, why don't you take me there? Why don't you take me there? You are a very demanding customer at the Target store. I'm not demanding, but it's like, 
I, I like you when want people, them to walk you to well, the spot. Well, a lot of times the they'll store. say, oh, well, a lot of times they'll say, I'll, well, I'll, I'll just show you where it is. It's yeah. just easier for me to show you where it is, right? Okay. So my question is, um, would you have given the person's name? These are kind of like moral dilemma. Yeah, right. Type of situation. I absolutely would, you, would, would not have given the name. I, okay. d- snitches get stitches. There okay. is no way. I'm not a narc. I'm not going to get anybody to lose their job because maybe maybe the customer service rep was just having a bad day. Right. Maybe maybe they got out of the wrong side of the bed and they were just grumpy or whatever it was. And I don't think this person was having a bad day. <laughs> I think she just really didn't know what she was doing. Okay. She well, was a, she was a representative for the company that really didn't have a hold because because. Because the maybe other she's woman, worked there ten minutes. I mean, everybody's changing jobs now. Maybe, yeah, maybe. she just got there. Maybe, maybe. Well, I'm and glad she, you didn't turn her in. No, I didn't turn her in. I didn't Good. turn her in. Good. Okay, so this is a this is another one. You you work at a job where it's 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 kind of a teamwork type of job, and you yes. share ideas and you know with all your team members on a daily basis. So in your weekly meeting with your supervisor, one of your coworkers takes credit for something that you came up with. Mm. Okay. Your supervisor then thinks your coworker came up with the idea and your coworker doesn't correct the misinterpretation and allows the boss to commend him and offer a bonus to him. Really? Okay. Got it. This is really tough. Okay. So do you go to your coworker and demand that he correct the situation Go to your supervisor and explain you should receive the uh, the bonus and the chem, you know commendation, or do you just like just forget it and uh, you know just forget it? I, I don't leave it alone. There's I'm definitely going to take action. Now I think this is a little bit like snitches get stitches, right? I mean I'm not going to go directly to the boss and say, "Hey, Joe." didn't come up with that idea. That was my idea. He shouldn't be getting that bonus. I should be getting that bonus. I should be getting that commendation. So I would go directly to the coworker and encourage them to do the right thing. Now, if they didn't, I would risk the stitches and snitch. Right. I want credit. Yes. Especially if it's my idea and, and there's a bonus involved I want credit. So first, I'm going to expect the coworker to do the right thing. And if not, um, what, do, what do you think? Anonymous email? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> anonymous email to the boss? Something like that? How do you send I an anonymous make... email? You'd have, to, you'd have to get a whole new email, right? <laughs> get a whole new email <laughs> and then prove that you're somehow interested in this dispute between employees yeah, no, I'd go to I'd go to the boss. If the if the if the fellow worker doesn't do the right thing, I go to the boss. What about you? Um, yeah, I'd go to the boss for sure. You'd go you directly know. to the boss, or would you go to the coworker? First? Oh, I'd go I'd, I'd go to the coworker first for sure, yeah. and then and then if that didn't work, let people um, try to do the right thing. Well, I would say, you know, come on, man, like you you know that it was my idea. I mean, that's not cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you know, you know, and I, I don't know if I've ever brought this up before, but working in a, in a writer's room, working on a series, um, you know, people are yelling out ideas all the time. Yeah. Right. And sometimes you don't know whether if they don't re if, if no one reacts in a, in any way favorable or not, yep. sometimes you're not sure. Like, did they, 
not like the idea? Because you know it was something really great. Did yep. they not like it or did they not hear it? Did it get lost because everybody's talking? And I was in a situation once where I pitched something and nobody reacted. And then like like a pitch or two later, one of the other writers pitched Said the, the same, same thing, exact thing. Uh. And they were like, that's great. And I'm sitting there like, holy shit. And you can't in a writer's room say, hey, man, I just said that. You Why? can't do that. It's just, it's just, it's just one of those unspoken. Can you just can you point at him and say, hey, that's what I just said. No, you can't. You, you can't. can't. Because then you'll be perceived as like, it's just an uncool thing to do in a writer's room to, to, to say like, oh, I said, you know, but I said it. It just doesn't bode well. And you will be frowned upon. And it's just something you don't do. You have to let it go. And you can't even like go to the showrunner after the table, you know, after you've, you know, had your pitch meeting. You can't go go to the showrunner and say, hey, you know, that I, that joke, that was mine. Because it, it's perceived as being petty. Mm. So. See, I, I would have a hard time letting that credit go. Well. I would you, find a way. Uh, you, you just, well, uh, good luck. I would find a way. <laughs> Hey, uh, who's who's the showrunner? Who who's who's? Give me a give me a name. Who? Wait a minute. What room did this happen in? On the Ellen Show. The oh. And I was so miserable there, and it was like really, you know, um, just just. Well, she me, didn't like, like you. She wasn't going to give. No, no, no. She, anyway. she no. She ne- she was never at at, at these. Uh, she was never there when we were uh, breaking stories. Oh, she wasn't. No, no, no. She never sat at the table with us. Yeah, um, I would I would find a way to get credit. You know what I love? I love uh, commendations. I love credit. I love awards. I always say I'm in this business for the awards. Um, I've got a mantle full of, you know, Bob Miller trophies for best radio, whatever it is and all that stuff. I would find a way to let Ellen know, it hey, had nothing- do you like no, my joke? No, no, no. It had nothing to do with Ellen. It had nothing to do with Ellen. It was it was sitting in a writer's room. It, I'm telling you, Steve, it's just the way it is. You cannot, you know, it's even like like the like the last job I had. You know, um, there were certain things that they weren't aware that I I did on the show, and you can't go to the people that like my bosses and say, hey, you know that cut, you know. When when uh, when when uh, this happened or that happened or oh you know that cue you know where the music was doing whatever you know right, like I put right. that under you know a scene you can't go and claim that it was yours it's just something you don't do and there are a lot of times in writers rooms um, where 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 the showrunner sometimes is asked whose joke was that and they won't say they'll say it was the writers won't say whose joke it was. The showrunner, like like some maybe someone at the network, or or somebody says who did this, right? Like, to you know, because they want to know like who's. Oh, and they'll it. they'll say it was just the team. It was the team. Mm-hmm. It was the team. They don't want to single out one person because. Okay, what about this? Somebody. Okay, I've got a great joke, um, and I throw it out, and mm-hmm. they don't react to it. Right. And then somebody else throws out the joke, like right after, and I say, "Jinx! I just said that." What about that? You'd probably get fired for saying jinx. I just said that. Uh, jinx, you owe me a Coke. <laughs> Could you be more hack? You would get fired on the spot. Spot. Yeah, I wouldn't be good in the writer's room. I'd be looking for credit. Looking for credit. Um, all right. Uh, well, let's get to the uh, to the big act here. 
Um, our guest today got her big break in the Netflix series Sex Education. She followed that up with the starring role in season two of the internationally acclaimed Shonda Rhimes romantic drama Bridgerton. Simone Ashley joins us. Simone, thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, congratulations on Bridgerton and Emmy buzz and all that kind of stuff. It must be, you know, it's one of Netflix's biggest shows of all time. Uh, I think it was like something like 80 million households were watching season two. Does your life just change overnight when the show drops? Um, not overnight. Really, I think um, I when we were doing the press tour um, leading up to the premiere of the show, I, I actually got asked that question quite a lot, and I I was a bit like, oh, is is this going to be like literally overnight and click everything's going to be different? And to be honest, it's really only recently I've really noticed such a change, a positive change that I'm deeply grateful for. And um, I could have seen the more that the world was like digesting the show, like it's been three months now since it's been released. Yes, very honestly, there's been such a shift. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very happy, <laughs> to put it simply, yeah. <laughs> so so how, mu- how much did you know about this, this era, you know, this whole Regency um, era and the books? Did you know anything about it before you got the part? I, I hadn't really heard of the books, but when um, season one came out in Christmas 2020, of course, everyone was talking about it. And um, then I got to understand that, oh, there's this series called Bridgerton that's based off this massive franchise of books. And um, in terms of knowing much about the era itself, I mean, I grew up watching the classics like Pride and Prejudice, but um, quite honestly, period dramas weren't something that I ever that ever really inspired me in the sense of something that I wanted to, that I thought that I would ever be a part of. Um, so it was quite perfect really to have an opportunity that I didn't think would ever happen. A woman who looks like me being a part of a period drama and then also just learning so much about what it was like to be a woman back then. Um, and um, as an actor, it was super, um, it was such a great challenge and super interesting to have such well-written characters, but then amongst this cultural restriction of what women could and couldn't do in that society and how we're conveying that to a modern day audience as well. So yeah, I, um, I learned a lot. So describe the process of actually getting this role. How did it all happen? Yeah. So I, um, I was living in LA at the time, but I was in London, um, filming season three of Sex Education and a movie. And um, shortly after season one premiered, I got a text just saying, um, they're quite interested in you and for this for this leading role in season two of Bridgerton. This is the series, you should check it out. And then 14 days later, um, it was announced. And, wow. Um, so what, what happened in that 14 days? Um, so I sent two self-tapes. And then I think I had a Zoom meeting with um, a few of the producers from Shondaland and our casting director, Kelly. And then, um, yeah, I, I then went to the studios and had a chemistry read with Jonathan Bailey. And then I think two, three days after that, um, I got a call from my agent saying, it's very secret, you've got the role and they're going to be announcing it. And I was like, oh, in like six months time, they'll be announcing it whilst we're in the middle of filming. And they were like, no, in like 45 minutes. And um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So chemistry right off the bat, amazing with Jonathan because it shows in the series. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 
chemistry, it's, it's so hard to articulate what exactly it is, chemistry. And I think that's what makes it such a magical thing. Um, we have such a, I had such a amazing 11 months working with him and we do have amazing working chemistry together, chemistry as friends together. And, um, I think Jonathan's just such a generous, um, actor. So it was effortless reacting off him um in these scenes and I think the scenes that were chosen for us were so perfect for um you know just such an intimate little reading we were just on two chairs in a little studio one of them was a scene where we were supposed to be on horseback um and we were just sat on our chairs and um I think we've just had incredibly parallel synchronized ideas of what we wanted to give these characters and their relationship and um I think we, we were both just had the same curiosity on how humans work when it comes to head and heart and what it means to find love, the difficulties losing it and how precious it is when you find it and the same kind of values around family, both in our real lives and to our characters. Um, so yeah, it wasn't even spoke. It was very unspoken. We just did the scenes and you could just feel it. And um, yeah, we, and we worked so well together. Um, and I just remember any scene that we did together, no matter how big or challenging the scene was or how small it was, and just the crew everywhere and all those distractions and a crazy filming schedule, when we were together and cameras were rolling, it was just blinkers on. We had that tunnel vision and um, it's incredibly special when you find that. So um, I'm very lucky to have um, played such an um, incredible female role, but also to have shared that and to have such confidence stepping into it, knowing I, I have that chemistry with Jonathan. So, yeah, and I'm glad that everyone could see that. So you find yourself wearing, I guess, corsets and I, I don't I don't know the type, ball gowns kind of thing, uh, you're horseback <laughs> riding, you're spending, you're spending kind of all day in that gear, I would assume, corset and all that stuff, right? What, what's that like a shooting day on Bridgerton? Um. Yeah, so in the course of every day um, for 11 months, 10 to 11 months um, in fittings and everything, I got used to the corset very quickly within a month to the point where I actually really like corsets. I think um, they're very flattering and I'd like to incorporate that more into my everyday life. Um, never thought I would be saying that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, there were some actresses within the cast that had to wear the full corsets. So I feel I can't really complain. I only had half a corset, which um, was still a little bit restrictive. But um, they were all so beautifully made, um, couture um, costumes. Every costume was designed for each person, um, from the measurements to everything. And um, yeah, I I did get to step out of my trailer every day um, wearing such beautiful ball gowns or dresses or riding habits. Um, and you know we had amazing wigs and makeup to to go with the looks um so yeah it was quite the fairy tale had you um, been horse ri back riding before had you ever been on a horse once and then when i got the role i was in like horse training boot camp did you do that super fast uh like racing scene i think it was very near the beginning uh when you first yeah. meet jonathan did you do that yourself some of it is me and some of it i'm not contractually allowed to like jumping over the hedge um so the yes. stunt, we had amazing stunt horse riders working for us but um uh yeah i'd like to say that most of it is me and we put in the work to to go fast on those horses um so yeah and i really enjoyed it so i'm hoping season three we have more horse riding 
So you brought up the hair and makeup. So let, let's talk about the hair. Okay. okay. Um, right. <laughs> I would think that it would have been hours and hours for the hair and makeup people, especially the queen. Steve and I were joking earlier about the headdress that the queen wears. Okay. And it seemed like almost every scene, not every scene, but probably every episode, her hair, her headdress had changed like one, you know, it, it was like a Marge Simpson kind of looking headdress Mm -hmm. and then another one she had like a huge afro kind of thing like as an as an actress and people on the set were were you always like all right what is she gonna look like today what are they gonna dress her in today yeah I mean I didn't share um a makeup trailer with Golda she had a separate one um the wig had its own trailer as well obviously (laughs) um but um, no, that was a conversation. We would all be like, what is she going to wear next? And there'd be rumors going around like, I heard it's in the shape of a boat or I heard it's this or it's that or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, we would all be so excited to come to set if we were filming a scene together and like check her out and be like, oh my gosh, it looks amazing. So she rocked it. She looked amazing. And yeah, I mean, she, Golda definitely had like physical challenges with her costumes and they, uh, you know, she was very taken care of and she's such a trooper, obviously, and still just nailed it. And yeah. So you moved to LA, I guess, by yourself when you were something like 15 years old. Uh, what, what was that like? Weren't you intimidated to cross continents and sort of take on the world, go far away from home? Um, no, I wasn't intimidated. I think I... I um I was very aware and um understood that I was from a background um that didn't really have any experience or knowledge um in of, of this industry of the entertainment industry and um I I didn't want to let that stop me and that to make the decision of what my future was going to be like and I um I had a lot of self belief I guess and I'm I think maybe naively so I'm a bit of a daydreamer and I am um, I have family from Ojai California so I'm quite familiar with it and yeah I mean moving that young to LA when you can't drive wouldn't recommend it I um <laughs> yeah it wasn't easy and um uh, but I I knew that I had I, I gave myself like cool you've got 10 years to like at least get your foot in the door and you um, made it yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, getting that. Yeah, so yeah, so um, the plan is the plan's coming together. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, no, I, I just always well, not that I winged it, but I just always was like, no, I somehow I can get away with this, and it's going to work out. So, so yeah. you said you had you had family in Ohio. So, did you go to Ohio, or you came to Los Angeles? And when you came to Los Angeles at a young age, where did you live? So I, um, honestly, I was signed with a modeling agency, um, out there. And so I was staying in a model apartment, like those communal apartments. Um, and one of the agents, his name is Assad. Um, he really believed in me and could see that I didn't want to be a model and that I wasn't getting any modeling work at all. Anyway, I wasn't making any money. Um, and he, said um they're looking for background roles in straight out of compton it's an acting gig this is the best we can do right now and um i did it and i got it on my resume and then just milked it when i came back to london i was like yeah i've got this role this is straight out of compton <laughs> <laughs> people started to see me um, one of my one of my really good friends is o'shea jackson jr did you meet o'shea 
Uh, I don't think so. No, I was with Corey Hawkins on that day. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't think I was with O'Shea. No. So I, I'm wondering, I, you know, I saw all these magazine covers with, with you on them, you know, Vogue and Glamour and stuff like this. I was wondering, were you ever like walking through a shop or walking through a store and you see yourself on a magazine cover and what that, what that must be like? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's two different things. And one being, obviously, when I see these things, it's, it is a moment and I'm very proud and it's good to take that in. And I think sometimes um, it's, it's easy to, to not take it in and to be like, okay, next thing, next thing. And I, I try to be disciplined with that and be grateful for the moment. But also one thing I've learned is when you're doing all these exciting things for press, like magazine covers or shoots or whatever it might be, when you're in it, it is... I, I work so hard and I'm, I'm very thoughtful towards how I approach my work that you can forget what's actually happening. And then a month later when these things come out, you see it and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And you can really appreciate it. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very excited and very grateful. Yeah. So I just one second. I want to, I kind of want to go back to Bridgerton for, for a minute because, you know, I, I binged the second season like in two days. And when I, when I first started watching it, I was thinking to myself mating season. And, and it, I kind of got a chuckle out of the fact that it seemed like it was the original bachelorette when you think about it. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, especially when it's the Viscount season and he's off, you know, finding a wife and I guess in episode one where it's announced that he's looking for a wife and then all the girls like kind of surround him. Yeah, I see that. I like that similarity. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, And how much, like, how much do you know about, I mean, as actors, I always wonder how much you know what, what the showrunner or what the producers are going to do, especially with music, because the, the way they use music in this show, using a lot of modern music in, mm-hmm. in, 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 you know, in, in a, you know, period type of, you know, show, it's yeah. just so clever. And there was one scene, it was one of my favorite scenes where you're in the woods with Anthony. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I'm listening to, cause it's a lot of string music and I'm listening to it and I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds like you ought to know yep. by Alanis Morissette. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, it was such a brilliant piece of music to play at that particular moment. Um, yeah. What did you, I, I don't know if you knew that they were going to do that, but when you first saw it, what did, how did that, how did it feel that they used that, that particular track? Yeah. Um, so some of the scenes, we we did know what songs were going to be used or what was going to be used on the day of filming, if it was a dance scene, for example, and then they might change it in post. And actually, we had a lot of um, creative input on what songs we may have wanted to be involved, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. But for that scene in particular, yeah, watching it, it, it's magical when you see it all come together and how powerful music is and how it influences how you take a scene. Um, and I, I just thought it was very cool. Like to ha- I didn't see it coming. And I'm, I, I think that's the kind of response that we've ha- had from the fans watching it and the audiences watching it. Um, so yeah, very special moment. I think it's a cool move from our um, amazing sound designers. And- so, so as a guy back to bridge, as a guy watching the show, I, I felt, it's kind of sympathetic towards 
the women. I mean, women in this era were put into such a tiny little box. Like you can be this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it must have been really, really difficult to be a woman of this era, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that's what's so great about this show being for a modern day audience is that it intertwines what it was authentically then in the 18th century. And as you're saying, how women were just so restricted and they had to treat their marriages like it was their career and they didn't have as much choice. Um, but then also to, to have that for a modern day audience that can relate to it, these women are still incredibly strong, incredibly forward thinking, and they use that restriction as a fire to kind of help them flee from that, I guess. There's a line that I always reference to, I think Eloise says it in one of the episodes, and it's, what if I want to fly? And I was hmm. like, yeah, that applies to every single female character. We are an ensemble, and it, it's, um, I think it's that shared feeling between all the female characters, and you can see they find friendship within that or relate to each other within that um and I that's why I loved the character of Kate because she was very much she was quite controversial and very much against getting married playing by the rules um she she did it like a dude in the words of Jessica (laughs) (laughs) did it like a dude yes yes so I read I read a quote and this is I think this is from uh an article I read in in one I think Glamour magazine And you give this piece of advice to other women. You say, don't be afraid to be difficult. What what do you mean? Um, I think it's something that I definitely tell myself because sometimes with my work or in life in general, if I find myself afraid to say something or to get ahead of something or just to say something and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this because I don't want to be difficult. I don't want to bother anyone. And um, I, I I did start to notice and work sometimes guys could do certain things and everyone would be like, wow, like, what a guy. And then if a girl did it, it'd be like, could you just, could you just not like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I really understood that. And I, I think for myself, I say this and I guess whatever I'm saying to myself is what I'm representing to young women watching the show or watching my career. And, um, yeah, I think it translates to be brave. And, you know, if you've got good intentions and a good heart and you know yourself, um, then what, what have you got to lose? Speak up. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone's going to like you and no one's perfect. That's something I had to learn very quickly as well. So, yeah. 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 And I think also in show business too, you know, you just feel like, oh God, you know, if I do speak up and I do say something that somebody doesn't like, you know, maybe... Um, I get I get fired or they're not going to use me or I'm going to get this reputation. And I have found, you know, I did stand up for a very, very long time. And I found out in my career that sometimes there were people that really act, reacted um, quite the opposite of what my fear was, that they really respected me a lot more for speaking up. Exactly. Because you respected yourself. And that's why people, yeah, consider that. So. So yeah. <laughs> you, you have said that Quentin Tarantino is one of your uh, biggest early influences. What was your first Tarantino movie? Kill Bill. Nice. Volume one or volume two? 
I always see them as one film. Everyone yeah, they are kind of one film. One film. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but did they, they were released like quite further apart. Oh, then. I think they were two yeah. years apart. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, that shows my age. I was very young that I got to watch it like back to back, probably. Um, but I, I was raised on like Disney classics and Pixar films, always singing and doing stuff like that. And I remember walking in and my dad was watching Kill Bill and I was like, wow, like I was so intrigued by his choice of soundtracks, his music, um, the way he incorporates anime and cartoon into his work from black and white to super colorful, all the watching all these women like be super badasses and kickbox and all of these things. And I, and I loved the, that the fact that the story was a woman that was out for revenge and she was, but it was also to find her baby and to find her love again. And just thought it was amazing. And it, I watched it and I was like, I just want to be a part of all of this. So it really influenced me. I, I actually read that one of your, um, I don't know if you would say a role model, but you really look up to someone like Margot Robbie, you know, who has a yeah. production company and is, yeah. you know, making films. And so is that some uh, direction that you see yourself going in? Yes. So I, I set up a production company last year when I started Bridgerton. Um, and yeah, I, um, someone I've worked with has always said, um, fingers, not wands. And that means sometimes in this industry, I guess, or in any industry, we just wait for the perfect thing to fall in our lap. And then it's like, oh, I got the perfect film with the great director and all this and all that. And it's all stars aligned. And that can happen. But also, that's when we don't have magic wands and we only have fingers. You can make it happen and um, create your own um, future projects and be in the driver's wheel of your own career. Um, And I did notice that's what Margot Robbie's doing and many other actresses I look up to. And I think it's really, it's a really fun part of it um, to have that kind of creative input. Um, I loved what she did with Itonia and what she's doing with the Barbie movie and all these different things. And um, it's also building that sense of community in this industry um, because we are a community from every single person and a crew or creative team and cast, everything. It's, you need like an army of people to make a project. Um, and I like that. So I, yeah, I've, I've just started and I'm, um, there's some exciting things that I'm excited to announce about, but yeah, I'm, I'm in it for the long run. So I think it's hopefully just the beginning. So being a, being a star on Bridgerton means you get to do a lot of really cool stuff, like go to the vanity fair Oscars party. What, what, I mean, I've never been invited to any of those parts. I, I'm just not, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, Bridgerton level. Uh, <laughs> what, what's it like to go to those parties? I mean, is it, is, are you, are you nervous? Uh, who did you meet? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's two that I can think a few, I've been to like fantasy fair and the BAFTAs and a few different things. And the two that are very memorable Vanity Fair, I was so nervous. Um, I went on my own, completely on my own. And um, um, it was like a week before the show was premiering. So no one really knew me or, you know, I didn't really have much of, I, I just I just felt very um, shy, I guess. Or just kept myself to myself for a better word. And I just remember being in the queue and everyone kind of came with their entourages or rolling in from the Oscars with like all of their friends. And I was on my own and 
reporters would come up to him and be like, who did you bring with you tonight? And I was like, no one <laughs> on my own. <laughs> um, but no, and then I went in and made friends very quickly and introduced myself to people. And um, I didn't stay for too long that night because I had press the next morning very early. But actually, then a few months, a few weeks later, I went to the Met Gala, which I was very honoured to attend. Sure. And um, that was I. Um, that was just as fun as Vanity Fair, but I, I felt much more um, confident, I guess, because I it, I had a few weeks to kind of get used to everything and to get to know people. And Did you feel yourself able to walk up to like a, a star and introduce yourself? Because um, I, I would be lost. Like I, I see. I see like I was I was backstage at a, a Broadway show and I met Jerry Seinfeld and I was just like yeah. I couldn't even speak. I, I was like, uh, I'm Steve. And that was about all I could muster. What, what about you? Did, were you able to walk up to somebody and say, hey, um, I think most people, if I catch their eye, I'll just very politely nod and give them a smile and hopefully make them smile. And then that kind of invites a conversation. Um, I did go up to Maggie Rogers, um, the singer. Um, mm-hmm. I followed her career since the beginning, I guess, since that video with her and Pharrell Williams was released. And um, she was so cool, um, to, like cool for school. And I, I was fangirling over her very hard. Um, so, yeah, a few times. But I think people love to be admired for their work. And I think, you know, as long as you're cool and you're not <laughs> creepy, then it's a laugh. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, so you went by yourself. Now, uh, f- I'm sure friends of yours um, knew that you were going. Did anybody try to, you know, inch their way in and say, come on, you had a, you have a plus one, take me. For Vanity Fair, I wasn't allowed a plus one, actually. Ah. Um, I think if you were coming from the Oscars, you were. Um, but I, I, I do have um, a very good friend who comes to most of these things with me if I'm allowed a plus one. Um and she's she's my wing woman and my best friend and yeah and I'm I'm very grateful that for that you need your tribe when you go to these things um just to bring out the best in you and just so you can have a fun time because you are supposed to be having fun. Um, so so were you watching a, a big screen when uh, Will Smith uh, slapped Chris? I mean, what what went through your mind when you saw something like that? I was in my hotel room getting ready um, for the Vanity Fair party. And I think um, someone in my team um, just saw it on Twitter. And I was like, no way. And then I think we watched it for a few seconds and then got distracted and it was back to work. And I I wasn't really on my phone. And it was only the next day, really, that I saw bits of it. But yeah, mind my own business. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So... You have, I think, we're big dog people. You have, ah. I think, a uh, you have a cocker spaniel, right? I do yeah. I'm, I I try and get her on camera, but she's she's sat on my sofa right now. I've got a cocker spaniel. Yeah. What's what's her name? Myla. Myla. Tell mm-hmm. us about Myla. So Myla, I got her um, in 2016 as a puppy, and I um, everyone was like, "Don't do it if you want to be an actress." who's going to take care of the dog? You're never going to be around. And I was like, no, I want to do it anyway. And um, I I wanted a Cocker Spaniel because I love um, Lady from Lady and the Tramp. And I, when my hair's really curly, I'd like to think I, I kind of look like one. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I got her. And then she, she moved with me to the States. She travels around with me. Um, 
she comes to set with me every day um, or to shoots or whatever. Um, yeah, she's she's quite the character. Everyone loves Myla. Yeah. So when I one of the first scenes in in Bridgerton, you were sitting in a chair with uh, Newton. Yeah, the, cor- the corgi. The corgi. Right? Yeah. And yeah. all I can think of, how lucky are you to be doing a show and have a dog with you? I thought that too. And I, I thought corgis were small. So when I got told and they were like casting the dog, I was like, oh, I'm going to have like this little corgi puppy. This dog was huge. Like <laughs> I need two people to lift him up and put him on my lap. Um, he loved sausage and dog treats. That was the only way to make him work to the point where the trainer was like, so when I give my dog a treat, I'm like, oh, good sit. I'll give you a treat. And if the dog sat on set, the trainer would be like, you have to pay him. And, like, and they were like, well, yeah, like, you're not going to work for free. Like, you have to pay him. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll pay him. Here you go. It's so funny. Pay. It's in the dog's Very contract. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, professional etiquette with the dog. <laughs> so what, what was your chemistry with the dog? Do, do you have great chemistry right away? Yeah, I think I'd like to think I've got chemistry with most dogs. Um, yeah, I think he was he was an interesting character. Not Johnny, I don't think really sidled up to him much, but I no, I I got on with him. Um, yeah, he was sweet. You know, there are times where I'm more insulted if a dog doesn't like me than if a person yeah. doesn't like me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the exact same. I feel that it hits it hits a bit deeper. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh- Listen, this this has been uh, this has been great. Uh, Bridgerton season two streaming on Netflix. A lot of people, like eighty million households, have already watched it. But if you haven't seen it yet, it is definitely uh, a, a really really fun, entertaining show. Great luck to you for for award season and all that stuff. Thank you so much for doing this. We really really appreciate it. Of course, thank you for having me. Thanks so much, guys. And there she is, Simone Ashley. You know, guys don't generally watch Bridgerton, right? Mm-hmm. But I watched a, a big, big chunk, and I, I was very entertained. I was very entertained by it. Now, would you have watched it if we weren't interviewing someone from the show? Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. Well, I mean, that goes for a lot of things. That yeah, we true. Watch. We just had Mario Cantone on the show. Um, I can confess now that I never watched the what, what's the Sex and the City reboot show. And just like that, and ju- I never watched it. Just like that. Did you watch Sex and the City? I did watch Sex and the City. Okay. We were in New York. We were in the city, so I felt like I had to watch it. Sure. Because it was, remember that show was very much the zeitgeist in 1999, 2000, right in that era. That was, that was the era of Sopranos and Sex and the City in the beginning of HBO. You know, we were just having this, I was having this conversation with Juan. I think that the best, if I could only choose one streaming service, Mm -hmm. I think I would choose HBO Max. What about Mm -hmm. you? HBO Max has Barry. Are you watching Barry? I haven't seen the new season yet. Oh God, it is so good. It's like I said this on the air. I, I think it's kind of like the new Breaking Bad. There's there's violence and mm-hmm. there's absurdity and mm-hmm. there's comedy and it's got everything. Very much better call Saul, very much Breaking Bad. I'm mm-hmm. sure very similar audience. Barry's great. Hacks is unbelievable. I just finished season two of Hacks, uh, the flight attendant. Um 
that was that was fantastic. I think if I had to choose one, given HBO's track record, I would probably pick HBO Max. What about you? I think it would be a toss up between HBO Max and Netflix because there's so much great stuff on Netflix. I mean, just kind of out there stuff, things that like we didn't talk about sex education, which Simone yeah, yeah. Has, has been on the past three, you know, years, three seasons. Um, it's a brilliant, brilliant show. And shows like um Undercover, which is it's from Belgium. And I know you don't like subtitled shows. Oh god, I don't is, like shows I have to read. Uh it is so, so good. Fauda, another subtitled show that you I have to read watch. that one too. You have to read that one too. But there's a lot of kind of off the beaten track type of stuff on Netflix that you wouldn't get on HBO Max. So I'm getting a little bit closer on subtitles because when I go to my mom and not stepdad Leo's house, Mm -hmm. they are old. So they have got the subtitles on all the time on every show. So I'm like watching Big Bang Theory and they've got subtitles. I'm like, (laughs) seriously, guys, you need subtitles for How I Met Your Mother and Modern Family, but they're on all the time. Because they can't hear. Because they can't hear anymore. Okay. Exactly. Well, do they have uh, hearing aids? I don't think so. nobody's got a hearing aid. Oh, okay. No, they crank that TV and they turn on the subtitles. Wow. That's how they watch TV. Wow. Do they live in a house or an apartment? They live in a house. They're moving right now. Oh. My mom and that stepdad Leo are moving. They're, Leo's 81 and my mom is going to be 80 on June the 13th. They're moving. That is a really big job. And where are they moving to? They're going to be living in the same town. They're just moving to a new house. Yeah. Leo sold his house and they're moving into a different house. Oh. Um, but uh, yeah, they're all buried under moving stuff and remodeling a new house. And oh all my that God. Stuff. At 80 in their 80s. I know in their like, 80s. Right. Wow. They're like they're like kids, except for the subtitles <laughs> during young Sheldon. <laughs> now that is evidence that they are 80. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Uh, Hey, that was fun today. Thank you very much, Sue. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop podcast on Apple and on Spotify and at stevemason.com. Please leave us a rating and a review, and we will see you next time on the Culture Pop podcast.